welcome to the Remote Work Drive podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick. Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy. Hey there, I'm Brian Clark. I've been building businesses with content marketing for about 10 years before it had a name. I'm the founder of Copyblogger Further, and my newest project is called Longevity Gains. And I am happy to be here speaking with Jessica. Awesome. I am so excited to have you, Brian, on the Remote Work Tribe podcast. I've been following your work since I was a baby content marketer. One of the things I just wanted to immediately dive into and something that like, I immediately like, it's admire and respect is just how prolific you are when it comes to creating content consistently for such a long period of time at such a high quality bar. Are there any kind of systems or processes or just like mindset things that you've done in order to just be that prolific and that consistent? You know, it's so funny. And thank you very much for saying that. But the irony there is I often don't feel prolific. I mean, if you look across the years, then yes. But when I'm down in it, I always feel like I should be moving faster or doing more. And I think this is probably a common thing um, amongst ambitious content creators. But I think the the key word is consistency, you know, keep showing up. I I like to be very deliberate and I like to be very, uh, you know, I I write in series a lot, something I started way back in 2006 when I started Copyblogger, because even though I don't write books uh, or haven't historically, I, I approach blogging or newsletters or what have you as basically telling a book-like story over time. So that's really the only system I have. Otherwise, I would say it's just as messy and chaotic as anyone. I remember once I asked Seth Godin what his writing process was, and he's like, Brian, I'm not going to tell you because you'll think I'm a crazy person, and I have adopted that answer myself. It's just basically, as long as you can get it out there and and feel proud about the work you're doing, that essentially is the deal. But if you ask me very pointed questions, you'll probably get more out of me on that. Awesome. Yeah, that's such a good and like honest answer where it is about consistency. You said something really interesting, which was like kind of thinking about a lot of your content in series, um, which I think is a super smart approach to go, go about that. Do you have any kind of ways that you kind of think about how to like come up with what series to write about and when to write about that? Yeah, well, we talk about, you know, buyer's journey or or, or what have you. It really comes down to, uh, and it is similar to a book in that regard, which is what do people, what what does your target audience know or to the best that you can guess? Uh, and then what do they need to know? And then you kind of start there provide the groundwork and then, you know, progressively get deeper into the topic from there, just so, and again, this is my preference, so that you're taking someone over time on a journey with you where they're learning in in a logical, somewhat linear fashion, even though it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes, you know, obviously when you're writing a newsletter or a blog, or even creating a podcast, you have insights that change what you're doing. You get feedback from the audience that changes the way you think or changes uh, your perception or 
um, assumptions about what the audience knows, what they want, all sorts of things. And that's the beauty of, of, to me, of this type of writing, because you have a strategic plan for your content, but you're open due to the format to adapt on the fly to where you can, you may write about the same thing you were going to anyway, the next week or the next month, but it goes in a slightly different direction because you're getting feedback from your readers or you discovered something new in your ongoing research, what have you. So I, I love the dynamic between having a roadmap and the fact that I am not rigidly married to it at all. Absolutely. And then I know going back to the copywriter days when you're leading a team of 60 plus um, people on the team, how did you manage to kind of carve out the time to do deep work, the deep work that is necessary when it comes to like writing and like creating content? Yeah. And from an organizational standpoint, I think the key for any founder who finds themselves as CEO or what have you is to understand what you provide to the the venture and what your skills are and then build everything else around that. So I would not consider myself uh, a natural born CEO type or even, you know, a natural managerial type leader at all, but I was a leader in the cult. We created a culture through the work and the work was mainly my writing. So everyone who came to Copyblogger Media during those years when we were, you know, a fairly uh, decent sized distributor organization, everyone was on the same page. You know, we talk about organizational culture and it's really just a list of bullet points on the break room wall. Well, we didn't have a break room, obviously. And we weren't big on that kind of traditional kind of corporate stuff. Everyone came from the audience. So in a way of putting it, everyone was indoctrinated into the values and the way we believed at Copyblogger and what we stood for. So it was really harmonious uh, from that standpoint. But from there, uh, I had Tony Clark, who was who became, uh, he was my first business partner for the first product that I launched off of Copyblogger. And then he stuck with me and became a COO. And we worked really well together, which, which I think a lot of great organizations have a strong CEO, COO relationship. Um, but he understood that he needed to communicate more with people on my behalf. And, and of course, you know, under his own skills, uh, and let me go do what I do best, which is more of the deep work, uh, thinking long-term, thinking big picture type of stuff. So I think it would have been a mistake for me to try to be what Tony was uh, any more than it would have been a mistake for Tony to try to be me, right? Absolutely. That takes like a level of self-awareness that is so crucial. What was that process like when it came? For someone who maybe a founder who maybe doesn't have a CEO and maybe realizes they probably need one, what was that process like to kind of work together, collaborate, and also figure out, you know, each of, each of you guys's, you know, strengths and weaknesses when it came to delegating certain responsibilities within the business? Yeah. So the first three startups that I launched off of Copyblogger, it was 2007. 
then 2008 was a different product and company. And then 2009 was a different product and company. And each one had a different partner slash co-collaborator. Uh, and then in 2010, uh, we I exited one partnership, brought in Studio Press, and that's how Copy Blogger Media was formed, basically because I had all these talented people and I was the only thing in common. We weren't, they weren't talking to each other, uh, you know, and, and there was obviously a bigger picture that we could attack. So that was kind of the genesis of how the larger organization came into being. But along the way, it was always me collaborating with someone who could do things that I couldn't. So in the first case, we created an online course that became the first uh, business launched off a of copy blogger. It made, got to a million bucks in revenue within the first year. And it, I was the means of production. It was a, it was a course. So I could create the product, but I couldn't do everything. And that was how Tony and I started talking. Tony had design skills. He had development skills. Tony could do just about anything that needed to be done that allowed me to create the product, if you will. Now, the next company, I partnered with my former designer and we entered the WordPress premium market. I cannot code, right? But the product was based on me as a non-technical user of WordPress and the frustrations I had with it. So there... I'm helping to design the product, but I can't physically make it. So again, you've got to have a, a partnership where you can get that done. And the and finally, the third uh, startup was a SaaS product, which of course is way beyond my ability to create. But again, it was based on my SEO and content marketing principles. So like I was baked into the product and helped architect it, but... Uh, Sean Jackson and and Chris Thompson were the ones who actually built uh, the software. So it was very pragmatic in those days. Uh, it was ironic to me because I remember right before I started Copy Blogger, I would look at the guys in 37 Signals. Now they're called Basecamp. And I was like, wow, that's so cool that they make software. Too bad I could never do that. But I found out I can do that with the right help. And I, I chose to partner as opposed to hire. And, you know, there are a lot of different ways to get things done. But since we were completely bootstrapped 100% of the time, it just made sense to me to partner with people. And that really paid off when we formed Copy Blogger Media and everything came together. And we had kind of a had an organization there and we started adding employees at a pretty rapid rate. Absolutely. What are some of the criteria you look for when you go to figure out who to partner with? And if you guys are going to Chow and it makes sense to work together. Yeah, there's a Steve Jobs quote that I found to be fairly prescient, which was, um, it's more important what you say no to than what you say yes to. And during those years where Copyblogger was attracting a lot of opportunity and proposals from people because of the audience and, and the uh, you know prominence that we had in this new space of content marketing, I said no to so much. Um, that was just, some of it was kind of scammy. Some of it was wrong for the audience. 
first and foremost, to me, especially when you have an audience first business, you have to think about them first, not, oh, wouldn't it be cool to do this? And I think a lot of people develop products based on the wouldn't it be cool test, or I think people need this test, and that's why they fail. Often, if you're thinking very much and paying very much attention to the desires and the pain points that you just see come up over and over again by paying attention to the audience, you can do product development in a way where you basically don't fail because it's for them, not based on you know what you would think is cool. So that was the first criteria. And then, of course, there were a lot of no's based on, I don't feel good about this person. I don't think I can work with this person. Uh, there may be a, a personality conflict, what have you. So for me, it was really kind of a two-layer test that not many things got through. And yet, when you look at it from the outside, people go, wow, you partnered so much. That's amazing. Well, it's just amazing because I said no to ones that would clearly fail. And, and there, you know, there ended up being partner, uh, very few, but some collaborations that just did not work out. And then uh, I just move away from those and move into something more positive. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't have to answer this, but given that you had a very big and fast growing audience first business, going back to some of the opportunities that had no to, do you ever like in hindsight regret any of those decisions? No, not at all. Cool. And kind of diving in a little bit more into kind of your team structure with what the team structure was like um, at Coffee Blogger at like, what, can you maybe talk a little bit about what that team structure looked like and some of the ways that you made sure, even though most of those people were coming from within the audience first, that you made sure that they were a good fit in terms of like company culture and values. Yeah, that, that was interesting. It was, uh, you know, so when we formed Copy Blogger Media and we merged a couple companies together, the ones that I had started earlier, and then we brought Studio Press into it, which Brian Gardner had started that up, and he had a small team. And that's literally how we had our first employees was essentially through a merger by bringing Studio Press into the company. And basically, I told Brian Gardner, I will double Studio Press revenues in a year, if and, and he was actually the one who initiated the conversation because he just saw the way things were shifting in the WordPress market. So we ended up doing that within six months and it grew, you know, exponentially from there. But um, that was the genesis, no pun intended, of having employees. And then we needed to grow from there because we had a, a lot of ambitious plans to create other stuff, which we did. But yeah, we never posted, you know, a help wanted ad or anything. We didn't even really, you know, announce on social media at a pretty big Twitter following. And yet we would always hire just by having conversations with people that were already within the copy blogger community. So we had paid membership communities at the time. Um, our primary focus became software, but we always had educational communities to you know have a place for our our best customers to congregate and interact and I could keep my finger on the pulse of things there but uh, those communities also became a place 
where conversations naturally could take place. Hey, I'm looking, I'm, you know, I'm a WordPress developer. Uh, do you have anything? And that's how most of the hiring happened. I think at the very end, when we were already in eight figures and we we're up around 65 employees, remote, distributed all over the place, that we actually put out feelers for a specific position because it wasn't, it didn't just come to us. And I know that sounds almost unbelievable, but uh, it was an amazing experience in the sense that we never had a bad hire. Uh, you know, there were a few people who ultimately didn't work out, but it wasn't, it wasn't because they, you know, just were uh, completely inappropriate for the culture that we had. It just didn't work, uh, you know, a, a mismatch between skills or what have you. And that was very rare as well. So I may not be the best example other than to say that, you know, audience and community can seem like buzzwords uh, that aren't truly meaningful. And I can tell you that it is meaningful and, uh, and it, it can be an unexpected source of benefit to the company in ways that go beyond marketing and revenue and sales. It can, it can really lead to being able to build an organization that is truly philosophically all on the same page, which I think is a rare thing. And I think, you know, some of the best companies have that going for them. Yeah, I couldn't agree more as someone whose entire business and background is really at the intersection of community and content marketing, but like community when done well is the backbone and like the brand of a business. Absolutely. Diving a little bit further. So when you had 65 employees across every time zone, and obviously this was pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, what were some of the strategies you used to make sure everyone was collaborating and on the same page across so many different time zones? Again, I'll give a lot of credit to Tony for that. So here's an interesting story about, you know, Tony and I were, again, with that first startup in um, 2007. So we went into business together without having ever met, which is, I think, kind of odd in itself. Probably happens more often now. I don't know. But the really interesting thing to me is that we didn't meet for two years. <laughs> um, it, we finally got together, I think, at South by Southwest in Austin, because at that point, uh, like Copyblogger was starting to host parties at South by and uh, doing all this kind of PR stuff. And that was actually the first time we met. So we had, he and I had a very, you know, it wasn't even, it didn't even seem exceptional to us that we could collaborate and make a highly successful business without having ever met each other in person. And so I guess when you have that start of your relationship and we're both very online people, Tony is very, you know, uh, savvy into collaboration software. His prior company before we got together uh, was also remote and did software development, pretty high level software development you know, remotely. So he was just very comfortable with it. I was very comfortable with it. There was never any of this legacy baggage of, 
well, you got to have people in the office and you've got to see each other in the hallways. To us, that didn't make sense because we knew what we could do if you use technology effectively. So then you fast forward to 2015 or so, and you know, you've got new tools like Trello and Slack and all of this. And I always kind of shied away from using that stuff too much. Uh, I'll tell you in a second how we kind of structured things. Like I would go into Slack and see everyone was posting memes and I'm like, no one's doing any work. But I, I realized later that they're just bonding with each other a little bit and that actual work was being done. At least that's what I was told. <laughs> but from my standpoint, my points of reference, initially me and Tony, we talk I tell them, you know, the vision for the go forward. So we had a big picture roadmap, and then we would drill down into uh, smaller sprints about what we were focusing on for the quarter or what have you. And effectively, he was able to go out when we were smaller and help people execute on that. As we got larger, I had two VPs of marketing, Jared Morris, who is still with me today, and Robert Bruce, who is a dear friend. Uh, I just talked to him yesterday. But then it became those two guys reported directly to me, and we worked together executing on the marketing side of things. And then Tony would communicate more on the development side, interacting with developers, designers, what have you. I, I also worked one-on-one -on -one with Rafal Tamal, who was our head designer. He's now like a rock star freelance designer. So that was, design was something that I was always personally involved in. Can't do design, but I can recognize it when I see it. And that's why we work together that way. So when you look at it that way, that, that's a collection of about four people um, that I was always in contact with. Sonia Simone was another because she was effectively the C-level content person. So it's a very small group that I collaborated heavily with, but everything got done through some trickle-down effect from those conversations. That makes a ton of sense. Shifting gears a little bit, because I don't think you can do a podcast episode in 2023 and not at least talk a little bit about AI. What is your just general take on it and right now and where you think, you know, marketing in particular is headed? Such a good question. And I, I think my general attitude towards AI shifts from day to day, you know, coming up until chat GPT-3 and now four made its big splash, which I guess was eight, nine months ago now. I've been talking about for years that this is coming. This is coming. I think it was 2020, I wrote, I wasn't, you know, involved in day-to-day -day at Copyblogger anymore, and I wasn't really leading the company, but I wrote a report um, to launch a new community over there called The Killer and the Poet, and I was basically telling people, writers in particular, content creators in general, you can't just string words together and expect to make it. You've got to have this killer additional skill into your wordsmithing skills. And 
at that time I was talking that that would be strategy. And one of the main reasons I said this is because, look, AI is coming and it's probably going to be able to do the the general word stringing together stuff. And uh, you need to have some value on top of that. Well, that turned out to be more true than I really expected. I did not realize um, that we would so quickly, uh, because that, at that point, GPT, the technology, I think it was one or two at that point. So it quickly accelerated to the point we have now. And I don't think it's a threat right now. I think it's a tool right now. I don't know what's going to happen <laughs> three years, five years down the road. I do know it's going to continue to get better. It's an interesting question. Uh, I want to say you're not going to replace the writer, but I could be wrong. And that's what makes us all a little bit nervous, I think, and, and for good reason. But I, I'm still very much uh, in the uh, mind that you've got to diversify. You can't define yourself as a person who writes words or, or what have you. There has to be more. Uh, whether that be strategy or or marketing technology or or your uh, ability to be a persona, right? You're always talking about having a point of view in your writing, which of course I love, but you know, bringing that out and becoming more than just the content you create, uh, which a lot of people don't feel comfortable with. Some people do. It's an interesting time. The the, the most I can say is that writers are valuable regardless of whether or not the first draft is created by AI. And I think that's mainly about the way you think more than it is um, just the ability to put words down on paper. It's, uh, you know, writing is an expression of thinking. So ideas, points of view, uh, innovative perspectives, Right now, AI can only, you know, mix and match and remix what's been said, and it's up to humans to say new things. Yeah, well said. Where do you think it's going to be? I know no one can predict, and you kind of said this as well, but like no one can really predict what AI is going to do in the future. And given the fact that, you know, it's all probably only going to get better, and this is probably the worst that we've ever seen right now, and it will only get better from there. But where, how do you think it's going to change marketing in you know the next three to five years? Well, this is not a new thing that, especially in the realm of content, there will be vast more amounts of bad content than good. And that's been true um, with you know hiring writers off of Fiverr or not understanding the marketing aspect of content. And this is my biggest bone to pick with how content marketing is performed most of the time. And again, I love seeing what you say on LinkedIn and other places because you get it and, and you are trying to get people to listen that it's not just content. Even if it's well done uh, and topical, doesn't mean it's marketing right? And so many people think that uh, content marketing is really just about traffic generation, either from Google or social, both of which are drying up. 
and AI is threatening both even more, right? Um, so we're really moving into a, a place in marketing where the best of the best will understand how to truly connect and engage with human beings and everyone else will be cranking out, no matter how well it's done, uh, content generated by AI or a clueless human that doesn't really connect psychologically with people. And that's what marketing does. Content doesn't always do that, but content marketing does. Yeah, you're so right. And I always like to kind of say something I've been thinking about a lot more is ChatGPT and AI and BARD and insert AI tools, some of which are literally just open AI wrappers, but that's a whole other story, is now like the lowest barrier to entry of content. And unfortunately, there's a lot of writers and a lot of marketers out there who, you know, probably should be using that because their content was less than that. What are some things that someone can do who's a writer or a marketer who is listening to this that they can do to kind of level up their thinking and level up their approach so that they're, you know, at or above kind of the level of AI? Yeah, I think um, one of the, uh, you know, ranging from humorous to frustrating things for me is when I'll see someone, again, on LinkedIn, it's, it's somewhat comical, uh, all the people trying to position themselves as gurus and experts, but, you know, they'll say something like, well, here's the psychology of marketing. And I always go, what part of marketing isn't psychology? Go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll wait. You tell me, <laughs> you know, from research to messaging to uh, interpreting data, it's all about human psychology. There is no aspect of it that's not. And yet, there's a common misconception that there's marketing and then there's the psychology of marketing. Um, my background in undergrad was actually psychology and sociology, which my mom thought was fairly worthless. And it kind of was in the short term because I had to go to law school <laughs> from there uh, to make a living uh, before I became an entrepreneur. But when I look back on it now, it was the most perfect education for what we call digital marketing, because it's human psychology, but it's in groups, which is social psychology, audiences, masses of people, social media is the biggest expression of social psychology ever. And I know that there are very smart people who understand that. And then there are other people who don't get that at all. And I feel like that's going to be the differentiating point where you really understand how to make people, you know, what makes people tick and in particular your specific target audience. And I see so many people who to this day have no documented content marketing strategy. And I always wonder, how do you know what to say and how to say it if you don't have a strategy? And a lot of people just kind of wing it and some people get lucky, but it's really the fact that they connected with their target audience at the right level based on who they were. So they were authentic and they dis displayed certain values and attitudes and they connected with people, right? But luck is not a strategy. And uh, I think that's been the most damaging influence on marketers uh, when it comes to digital marketing and content marketing is that... They think it's all about uh, a 
particular cult of personality, which it can be, but the savviest marketers are starting with the audience and working back, not the other way around. So I think the way to, to, um, to make yourself more valuable in the age of AI is to understand not just people, but the specific people that either the client or your own audience that, you know, who you're, who you're talking to, what's the best thing to say to them in order to get them to take action and what's, and how's the best way to say it. And uh, I think there's going to be a shakeout. There's no doubt about there's going to be a shakeout because your average content can be created with a good prompt and a push of a button. And that eliminates a lot of unqualified people from the, from the pool. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I don't think I've ever mentioned this on the podcast, but I also minor, I minored in sociology, uh, didn't really, cause I just thought it was cool at the time and didn't really realize how valuable and couldn't agree more about how valuable that experience was back in the day and how much I still use it to this day. Yeah. Um, but besides, oh, go on. No, I was just agreeing with you. I'm just like, no one, you say uh, sociology minor or, or, you know, when people, especially in the tech community, like to uh, just say liberal arts degrees are worthless. I'm like, not when it comes to marketing. You know, there are certain, like an English degree is not the advantage you think for, for something like content marketing, but psychology and sociology, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. As someone who was a who was a journalism major, worked in a newsroom for about a year, and then basically fell into content marketing by accident. Like I still use my journalism skills every day. Yep. And and my sociology skills probably weekly. Going back to what you said, I couldn't agree more about kind of understanding psychology, sociology, and how that kind of can help future proof you in your career. Are there other things that you think, particularly the Gen X and the millennial? marketer or manager or even a founder for that matter because that's most of my audience can do to continue to kind of further feature with their career are there other skills other traits that could be very useful the one thing uh, you know we'll see um, how sophisticated ai gets but my favorite definition of creativity um, which is fairly well agreed upon at this point is really just seeing the intersection between things, seeing how things are alike instead of different. And we're kind of raised uh, through the education system to see how things are different, to categorize, to put things in this box and that box. And then you get to your job and someone tells you to think outside the box and you're like, what the hell does that mean? It basically means quit being confined within the way we've been taught to think our entire lives. But I've always kind of been good at seeing how things are the same. And I don't know necessarily where that comes from. Maybe it's just the way my brain is wired. But the intersection between seemingly unrelated things is how we come up with new things. And so being uh, well-read and, and, and beyond reading, you know, um, now, I don't suggest that we spend our evenings, you know, in front of Netflix the entire time, but there's a huge amount of benefit to watching great television, watching great film, reading fiction, as well as nonfiction, just exposing yourself to all these various 
uh, sources of information. Now, this is a contrast to intentional research. Like when you are working for a client and you've got to learn a particular thing, well, you got to do that in order to get it. But this is the opposite of this. You don't have a specific objective to learn a specific thing. In fact, you you might just be trying to enjoy yourself, but this kind of curiosity and exposure to these random ideas, if you're able to train yourself to see how these two things uh, that seem like they don't have anything to do with each other are related, well, these are great hooks. These are great angles you know, you're, you're trained to, as a journalist to do that kind of stuff to a certain degree. I just think that, you know, copywriters, that's really the name of the game. When it comes down to writing um, like a sales page, most of that is just assembling the elements. Well, we got to have, we got to have some social proof here and we got to have testimonials and we got to have the offer and blah, blah, blah. But the part that's truly creative is the big idea or the angle or the hook that connects perfectly with the audience and leads them to the connection with the product or whatever's being sold. And I think that is the essence of where humans will remain, you know, unreplaceable. I hope I'm not wrong, <laughs> but again, we'll see what happens down the road. Uh, but for now, cultivating that type of just staying very, very curious and exposing yourself to all sorts of different information, stories, metaphors, and, and just keeping your mind open. Don't veg out when you're not at work. To a certain degree, it's all work. Does that sound depressing? I hope not. No, I like it. It makes a ton of sense. Um, I could talk about AI and all this sort of feature-related stuff for a while. But before we wrap, I always like to ask a couple of lightning round questions. Okay. If you could have coffee with any historical figure, who would you choose and why? Oh, man, that is a good question. I'm not sure. Uh, since he's dead, I guess he counts as a historical figure. So I would say Steve Jobs. Oh, and why? Um, he had a lot of influence on me. Uh, he was a difficult person. We had a lot in common uh, as children. We were both adopted. Uh, I think that was highly impactful on, on our particular psychologies. Um, but I really loved his, his courage and dedication to uh, his values. And he had the kind of high level insight to realize that the only way that he could make little tiny upstart Apple and the Macintosh a contender against the big dogs of IBM and then Microsoft was through appealing uh, to people through core values. And um, this is something that has always stuck with me. And, and honestly, I think we're seeing more and more people realizing that it's not about demographics. It's not just about topics or, or what people are interested in or what you want to sell them. It's really connecting with people at a level of core values so that they feel like they belong with you. And, and we see that in good and bad ways with tribalism and politics and what have you, but there's a lot of good connection-wise stuff that can be done. And I think marketers can absolutely capitalize on that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, and this is just a totally out of left field, but when you were going back to when you were a kid, what was your favorite game or activity? 
Favorite gamer activity. Um, well, I, as a Gen Xer, we were the first generation to have video games. Uh, they were a bit crude compared to what we have now. I'm kind of seeing the games my son plays. I'm like, wow. You know, I honestly think they were more fun when they were cruder, but that's just my opinion. Anyway, yeah, early on, I was exposed to Atari and then I got a ColecoVision. And so I was uh, very much into um, video games when I was young. In fact, my first entrepreneurial endeavors were like mowing lawns and collecting. This is probably sounds archaic, but you know, uh, soda and whatnot used to come in bottles that uh, were recyclable for cash. So we would go around and collect the bottles and turn them in and get money. And then we would go to the arcade. This was before they had the home things. <laughs> so in the broadest sense, I would say early video games are near and dear to my heart. That's awesome. And what's one book you'd recommend that all remote first readers should read? Any book on any and all books, I would say, on effective communication, because when you're remote and you don't have necessarily uh, the verbal, I mean, uh, the visual cues. Now we, we use Zoom quite a bit. I don't know about you, though, but Zoom can be incredibly tiring. I don't know what it is about the technology. I've actually read about it before that why it wears you out so much. And as an introvert, you would think that just being on screen with people would not affect you the same way, but I get the same feeling <laughs> after doing that. But regardless, and, and this is something that I've had to work on because ironically, I'm fairly good at communicating through my writing to an audience because I know how hard it is to lose someone. Like if you really care about being clear, you know, about expressing with clarity. It takes a lot of hard work to do that. Then you would take me and put me in a position where I wasn't talking to Tony or one of my VPs or Sonia, and my answers would be too curt. <laughs> uh, I would just expect that people understood what I was saying. And this was the greatest lesson I learned by leading an organ, a remote organization of a substantial amount of people was that you have to work just as hard at clarity and understanding and not making assumptions about uh, that the other person understands or what they already know, curse of knowledge. All of the stuff we take into account as writers is exactly the same principles that you have to exhibit as a leader in a remote organization. So even if you're not a writer, even if you don't create content, if you're a leader in a remote organization, read every book you can on communication, read leadership books with an emphasis on how to uh, have clarity and uh, motivation at the same time. That would be my advice. That's a big reading library, but I think the the overall important point there is that you have to communicate with your team as if you're communicating with a vast audience of strangers. Couldn't agree more. And I'd even add on to that. I feel like all of the greatest remote first leaders, yourself included, for the most part, all have a background where they are also exceptional writers. They might not necessarily be, you know, writing to an audience every single day, but like, I don't actually think 
you could be a great remote first leader without at least knowing how to write. That's great. I'm glad you think that too, because it's, again, for me, it was just understanding that they're not two separate things. And that was probably the most important lesson I learned during that time. Um, but um, yeah, I, I think that's that's good advice for any uh, leader, probably at all, but especially in these days of of people working remotely more or having a completely distributed organization, you really have to be able to express with clarity what you're saying and writing forces you to understand exactly what you're trying to say. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been amazing having you on the Remote Work Tribe podcast, Brian. Where can listeners find you online? Well, uh, right now I'm focusing on uh, two sides of one coin, which is what I call the longevity economy. Uh, it's basically the market of people over 50, even though you really can't treat all older people the same, which is one of the core things we talk about. So further at further.net is uh, a newsletter that's aimed at people at uh, over the age of 50. And uh, for marketers to understand why that is my consumer level project, I have a project called Longevity Gains. Uh, Longevitygains.com is also a newsletter. Um, the biggest consumer block in the world in just a few short years will be people over 50. And yet we have a youth obsessed marketing and advertising culture it is the biggest opportunity I've ever seen in my life. And uh, so I'm helping people who are interested in that understand how to go about it. That's awesome. Thank you again for being on the Remote Work podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. Please visit our site, theremoteworkdrive.com to learn more about remote work trends and insights. Thank you.